For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Now, boys and girls, there's something that you need to know about Pastor Strader, and as one of his classmates, I'm in a good position to share this with you. For years, he has served both Christ and the United States Army as what's called a chaplain, and before that, as a chaplain's assistant. What that means is that he knows what it is like to receive orders, and then how to help soldiers with their orders. And one kind of order that every active duty soldier has received is the permanent change of station, or PCS travel order. When a soldier gets a PCS order, he must move away from one base to another. He packs up his family's belongings, he makes a move to a new base, he gets to know what life there looks like, and then he pays special attention to the do's and don'ts of his new commanding officer's expectations. Now, I'm sure that Pastor Strader has helped more than a few soldiers through the difficult process of shipping out or of moving in, whatever the case may be. And when we come to the Sermon on the Mount in our passage this evening, Christ has just issued PCS orders to the new recruits who would become his disciples. It's a scene there at the end of Matthew chapter 4. And the very next thing he does is tell them all about heavenly kingdom living so that they can get to know what life looks like in his kingdom and learn the do's and don'ts of his expectations for them as they take up their mission. In short, he reorients his disciples to heaven itself as he directs them to imitate God and to follow him in the blessed life of the kingdom of heaven. And his directions, they're anything but predictable. In fact, um, Christ's commands are jarring to the everyday Jewish man who would have been reared on the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes. For he's, he's raising up a renewed humanity, something altogether new in his time. Followers who will believe and live out the truth of God's word and, as the title of our sermon this evening suggests, the love of the kingdom of heaven rather than the lies of the Pharisees and their false religion. Christ continues building his church today, even as he teaches us by word and spirit the love of the kingdom of heaven. Christ calls and commissions gospel ministers for this very purpose, to help us with these orders that he delivers to us in our passage this evening, namely orders to love. So toward that end, we see in our passage this evening, in these few verses, that Christ commands us to love our enemies, just as our Heavenly Father first loved us. At the heart of Christ's program of discipleship is the shocking, but altogether gracious and ultimately lovely command to love our enemies just as our Heavenly Father first loved us. So we will consider this teaching from tonight's text under two headings. First, we must love our enemies in verses 43 and 44. And then second, by loving our enemies, we shall be like our heavenly Father who first loved us from verses 45 through 48. So in the first place, 
Christ is crystal clear in verse 43. We must love our enemies. The commandment to love our enemies is is not something that Jesus just invented for his disciples, but rather it's something he recovered, something which had been corrupted over many years of false teaching. Verses 43 and 44 reveal three things about this love commandment that Jesus hands down. First, the Pharisees' corruption of the love commandment, and then Christ's recovery of the love commandment, and finally, how to keep the love commandment. As Christ has been teaching from verse 21 in Matthew chapter 5, the Pharisees repeatedly twisted and misapplied the law of God, making it both more convenient to fulfill and also heartlessly self-serving. They had in two ways corrupted the Old Testament commandment cited here in verse 43, to love your neighbor. First, they've conveniently limited the definition of neighbor. And then secondly, they added a heartlessly self-serving mirror commandment, namely to hate your enemies. In Leviticus 19, 18, where we get this, this particular command, we read, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And now, now notice here in Leviticus 19 that the emphasis is on the loving activity required of God's people. But the Pharisees, when we flash forward to Christ's earthly ministry, following their rabbis, have fixated not on the activity that's commanded, but rather on the secondary question of whom is considered to be one's neighbor. Who is our neighbor? They've ignored the law's teaching about doing good to strangers, doing good to sojourners, doing good to slaves who dwelt in the midst of the nation of Israel. And once the Pharisees conveniently limit that word neighbor to mean only those people that they liked, it was very easy for them to say that everyone else deserved the opposite of love and kindness. That is, they then applied the judicial laws of God for the nation of Israel to their private affairs for their personal benefit, giving them justification for hating their enemies. The Pharisees could then teach any who might be listening to them, you must love your friend and you must hate your enemy. Now, when Christ warns his disciples later on in Matthew 16, 16, to beware the leaven of the Pharisees and their false teaching, surely this selfish impulse of theirs to twist God's law to their own personal advantage is one very real danger to avoid. And that's true for us just as it was for the disciples. But Jesus offers a correction as he's recovering the love commandment. He offers a correction in his recovery of the love commandment. So whereas in verse 43, the Pharisees have corrupted this commandment to love your neighbor as yourself, Jesus recovers that commandment in the first half of verse 44. His order to his disciples is this, if you look at it with me. But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. What is Christ telling us to do here? What does it mean to love? Or you might ask, what is love? Well, in this context, as we'll see in some detail in, in the verses to come, it's, it's a verb. Love is something you do. It's an intentional activity, a, a product of the will. 
It may or may not involve you having any special feeling of affection for the person that you're trying to love. Whether you like your neighbor or not, you certainly can love your neighbor. But what if your neighbor has become your enemy? Is it possible to love one's enemy? Who among us can say tonight that loving our enemies comes naturally? That it's an easy thing to do, that it's a light matter, that it's doable on our own efforts. It may be impossible on our own. In fact, it certainly is. But it is possible with God. The man that has been born again by the Spirit of God, that is, born from above to an everlasting hope in the kingdom of heaven, wills to love his enemy. Parents, do you pray that your children would know this new birth, this supernatural, regenerating grace that makes it possible for them to love their enemies, to be peacemakers, to be counted among the number of the sons of God. So having recovered the love commandment from the Pharisees' corruption of it, Christ then shows us in the second half of verse 44 how to keep that love commandment, what this looks like. We read, as he says to his disciples, pray for those who persecute you. If we flip over to the parallel passage in Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28, we get a bit more detail on this point as Christ says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And thus Luke expands on Matthew's summary statement here in our passage. And what is Matthew doing in just highlighting prayer? Well, he's giving us the pinnacle the, the towering mountain peak, the highest point of love for one's enemies. It's a noble thing to do good to those who do you harm. It's, it's good to speak blessings upon those who do nothing but curse you. But who you are in your heart is who you are in secret when you go before the Lord in your prayer closet to pray. And as Christ takes down the selfish teaching of the Pharisees and their scribes, he's going after your heart. So how are you to love your enemy, even your persecutor, the one who comes against you? You must pray for him. Pray even for his welfare, for his salvation, for the frustration of his wickedness, lest he incur even more judgment, more severe judgment than otherwise he might receive. And this how-to direction that Christ gives here, it reinforces what I said earlier about love being something that you do rather than something simply that you feel. You can pray for people even if you don't like them. And if my own experience is, is, is anything to refer to, of course, as you pray for people you don't like, your heart's going to soften toward them. You'll, you'll begin bit by bit to care about them to care about their well-being, to hope for the best for them, even God's gracious converting uh, uh, influence upon their lives. Now consider how this direction that Christ gives to his disciples to pray for their enemies, it's, it's also directly related to what he has done, or rather what he shall do in Matthew's gospel as our Savior and as our Redeemer. He laid down his life as a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, 
to save sinners. And he prays for us, even doing both things at the same time. In fact, Romans 5, 8 tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, that is, while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. He gave his life for us. While we were his enemies, Christ laid down his life, even suffering agony on a Roman cross. And as he was nailed to that cross upon which he died for the forgiveness of sins, what was he doing? Well, again, if we refer to Matthew's uh, partner Luke in Luke 23, 34, we read this. As he's being crucified, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus was offering a prayer, perhaps repeatedly, over and over again, as the nails pierced through his wrists and into the splintery wood beneath him, pleading for the salvation, not of his friends, not of his mother, not of those he loved, as we understand love, but praying for the salvation of his persecutors, those who were abusing him. You see, he was perfect in righteousness on that day, and on that day when he accomplished redemption for sinners, he was praying for his persecutors. What a glorious Savior we have. What a glorious Savior who gives us this order to, to love our enemies. And if he indeed is your Savior, you must follow him in this expression of active love for your enemies, the love which prevails in the kingdom of heaven as he's teaching his disciples. There's no subtlety in Jesus' words. There's no complexity. There's no confusion here. The command is clear as a bell. In verses 43 and 44, Christ corrects the Pharisees' corruption of the love commandment from Leviticus and teaches us that we must love our enemies. And he shows us essentially how to do that. But why? Why should we love our enemies? And that brings us to the second part of our passage. In verses 45 through 48, Christ answers the why question. By loving our enemies, we shall be like our heavenly Father who first loved us. This likeness unto our heavenly Father, a, a likeness that, that corresponds to what we've been talking about, to loving your enemies. It has three features. First, it proves your sonship of God. Secondly, it reflects God's extraordinary love for sinners. And thirdly, it expresses wholehearted devotion to God's cause. So the first part of Christ's answer to why, uh, why should we love our enemies, has to do with proving something, both to others and to yourself. Proving your sonship of God. What do I mean by this? When Christ says in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven... He's not setting up a condition for our adoption. It's not like he's, he's speaking as an orphanage director, telling orphaned boys and girls yearning for a home how to behave in order to increase the likelihood that they shall be adopted. No. Rather, he's making known to his disciples that loving their enemies will prove or demonstrate their relation to their Father in heaven. For love is a central feature of the Christian life. 
At the heart of what it means to be a Christian is to love others with a heavenly love because our Father loves us. For just one example of this, in 1 John 4, 7 and 8, we, we read, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now imagine you see a father and his, his grown son standing side by side. The father's clean-shaven, short hair, dressed in a suit. But then you look at the son, and he's got this thick beard. He's got longish, kind of messy hair. Uh, he looks like he just came off a six-month hike on the AT. You know what I'm talking about. They look nothing alike. But then a barber shows up out of nowhere with his barber chair. He, he sits the sun down. He gives him a straight shave. He, he cuts his hair. And then he calls in his friend, the tailor, to, to dress him in a suit just like his dad's. Well, now, Junior is the spitting image of his father. He looks just like dad. Has anything really changed in their relationship? No. Nothing's changed in their relationship, but now there's no question that he is, in fact, his father's son, is there? You can see it on his face. I mean, literally, you can see it on his face. Well, when we love our enemies in the name of Christ, when we love those neighbors who are always demanding things of us, when we love that, that person in the workplace who's trying to catch us in our Christian convictions in order to, to ding us with the boss. If, if, we, if we love those who seem, for no apparent reason at all even, to hate us, we resemble our Father in heaven. For he does good to all men without showing any partiality. What does the text say? Right here in verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You know, though this statement has become the proof text of the doctrine of God's common grace, or otherwise known as general beneficence to mankind, depending upon who you're talking to, it serves in this context, in our passage this evening, to illustrate how God does good even to his enemies. He sends the gifts of creation to all men, not because of who they are, no, but because of who he is. And when you bless those who curse you, when you do good to those who hate you, when you pray for those who persecute you, Christ tells us you demonstrate and prove your family resemblance to your Father in heaven. As you consider your prayer life, your, your speech with, with your loved ones, your actions this past week, do you recognize the indiscriminate goodness of God? His, his love, which he sheds abroad to all mankind in upholding the seasons of springtime and harvest, of, of not destroying us all in an instant. Do you then seek likewise, upon recognizing that aspect or that, that characteristic of your Father in heaven, do you seek likewise to do good to your neighbor as far as is possible? Why should you love your enemy? Well, in the first place, to prove your sonship of God, which is your citizenship in his kingdom. In the second place, you are to love your enemy in order to reflect God's extraordinary, superabounding love for sinners. 
In verses 46 and 47, Christ gives two very similar statements. He makes two appeals from the contrary. That is, from negative examples, he builds his case to support his command to love one's enemies. His point in these statements is to enforce what he said earlier in Matthew 5.20 about the righteousness of his disciples surpassing, superabounding, excelling or exceeding that righteousness, that external righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And most Jews in Christ's time considered themselves morally superior primarily to two groups of people, tax collectors who leached funds off of the people of Israel on behalf of the Roman Empire and debased Greeks, Romans, and other Gentile nations who didn't know the law of God. These the Jews considered to be morally inferior. And so when Christ mentions tax collectors and Gentiles, he's setting up a standard that is contrary to what his disciples, being Jews, considered about themselves. He's setting up a contrast He says in verse 46, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? In other words, what's that worth? And continuing on, do not even the tax collectors do the same? A self-interested love is no extraordinary thing. There's nothing super abounding or excellent, excelling about that. To bless those who bless you, do good to those who do good to you, there's nothing special this is, simple, you, this is simply put, you scratch my back, I scratch your back, tit for tat, quid quo pro. And likewise, in verse 47, the polite salutation, the affectionate greeting, the hello friend between kinfolk is really nothing morally remarkable, is it? Even the Gentiles treat those within their families and nations with courtesy and honor. But as disciples of Christ... We are called to a much higher standard of moral achievement. Christ is at work by his word and spirit shaping us to surpass the world's morality. We are to be known not only for our love to one another, but for our love for those who persecute us. What a testimony it is to God's extraordinary grace and love when Christian victims of horrific crimes appear in court or or come before crowds in a press conference or go on the news and take the opportunity to express the Christian desire for reconciliation and forgiveness. What could motivate such love? Is it merely the pragmatic desire for social peace? Is it a vain craving for fame to try to look good in front of other people? I don't think so. If the expressions of love, if they're sincere, then the motivation, it bubbles up from from within that changed heart. Or to put it another way, it comes down from heaven above and it reflects the love of the Father who so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And all those who have been born again and granted faith in Christ desire to reflect that heavenly love, that heavenly kingdom love to the world. That seeing our good works, our neighbors then might glorify our Father who is in heaven. Not only does loving your enemy prove your sonship, 
of God and, and also reflect his extraordinary, uh, superabounding love for sinners. But in the third place, it expresses something. It expresses wholehearted devotion to God's cause. That is the meaning of verse 48. This verse, it concludes what we've been looking at in verses 43 and following, but it also serves as a fitting conclusion to everything Christ has been saying since verse 17 in this first uh, meaty portion of the Sermon on the Mount. Christ declares here in verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you were to take that verse and just pluck it out of the passage, what word would stick out to you? What word requires some explanation, some figuring out here? I think that word perfect, that probably requires some explanation, doesn't it? We can immediately dismiss any interpretation of this verse that would support so-called perfectionism. That is the doctrine or the view that that we can achieve utter sinlessness or total moral perfection in this life. Not only does this false teaching flatly contradict the words of 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, but it denies the teaching of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, in his teaching on the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew 5. Uh, without going there, the Beatitudes uh, is, Lord, is our Lord's characterization or description of the members of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and he describes them as being poor in spirit, recognizing their sin, mournful over sin, both in its effects in the worlds, but primarily in themselves, continually hungering and thirsting after righteousness in their own lives and in need of mercy. Such people have not achieved moral perfection or sinlessness in this life, and they will not achieve it in this life. The word here translated as perfect then back in verse 48, it's better understood as whole or complete. It's it's speaking of the integrity of heart of the sincere Christian who loves his enemies. This wholeness This singleness, even purity of heart, is a defining mark of Christian ethics, of what it means to live as a Christian in society. And like everything else we've considered, this wholehearted devotion to the orders that have been received, to God's cause, to love one's enemies, it's impossible to manufacture on your own. You can't make it on your own. It, too, is a gift of God's grace. This wholeness of heart, while absolutely required of Christ's disciples, you must be wholehearted or perfect or complete. It's nevertheless the production of God, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts. It is God the Spirit who makes us wholehearted like God the Father in our love for our enemies. So if you're here this evening and and you don't know what it's like truly to love one's enemies, I'm not saying to like them, but to love them and what that means to pray earnestly and fervently for them, to do good unto them when you have opportunity, to bless them even and seek for their well-being. If you don't know what it is to desire to do all for Christ, 
to seek even for ways to reflect the love of God to a watching world around you, then trust in Jesus Christ and plead in his name with the Father to grant you that new life born from above, that heavenly kingdom life in him. Pastor Strader has received PCS orders, a permanent change of station. And he's received his assignment to take up a post here in the upstate. And all of us here, all of us, are hoping to enjoy fellowship with his family and with him for a very long time before the next PCS orders get handed down. But I wish to remind you all that we are, in fact, in a spiritual war against unseen but formidable powers. And with this being wartime then, the marching orders that Pastor Strader is called to help you to follow are urgent. Christ commands us to love our enemies just as our Heavenly Father has loved us. We must love our enemies. There's no negotiating this. Are you doing it? This is the defining trait of the Christian in society. It's, it's especially as he or she is engaged in the extension of Christ's heavenly kingdom on earth where persecution is sure to come. And yet, if we are to succeed in our mission as individual Christians and, and as the church, as the body of Christ, this is to be foremost in our minds. We must love our enemies to the glory of God. We must bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate and attack us, and pray for those who persecute and revile us. Satan fears nothing more, nothing more than a follower of Christ praying in Jesus' name for the conversion of sinners and the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. Remember what the Holy Spirit is doing in you, the promise of God here, that the Spirit of God is at work restoring the image of God in you. You're not on your own. You have a divine quartermaster supplying for your every need. And by loving our enemies, we shall be like our Heavenly Father who first loved us in fulfillment of His purposes in our lives. Just as God the Father loved us and blessed us when we wanted nothing to do with him, just as the Spirit did good to us in calling us out of darkness, bringing us into his marvelous light when we otherwise would have persisted in our own violent and dark hatred for God and his word, just as Christ prayed for us, even when we reviled and mocked his name as enemies of his crown and kingdom, so too are we to walk in love for our enemies. When we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly, that we might be justified, adopted, and sanctified sons of the living God, destined for eternal glory. Therefore, love him. Love your neighbors. Love your friends. But love even your enemies. And let the light of Christ shine through you that all the world might see and know the one true and living triune God. Let's stand together for prayer. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. 
For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.